UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Okay. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have back another fascinating guest with me today. I have back with me Mark Ollie. Um, he he uh, wrote the book on it's it's a new book. It's called The Polygonicon of Joseph Merlin, an author. Um, a little bit about Mark. He's an author. He's a TV presenter. Um, he's from the UK, and uh, this is a an amazing book. Um, he's going to tell us all about it today and about uh, the real history that has kind of been like not told to us from the mainstream. And uh, I want to give him a big warm welcome to the show. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining. Hi. Me. Hi. Uh, let's hope the connection holds from here to the UK, from UK to US. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yes, the book is, um, is in fact, there, there it is. Polychronicon. Yeah, it's the Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur, and, and there they are. Arthur's in the middle, Joseph's the one in blue, and Merlin is the magician on the other side. No, that's the here's book. The first question I have: like, what does Joseph of Arimathea have to do with Arthur and Merlin? Isn't he a different character, or is, is it is it tied in? Well, I can answer that in two ways. First of all, you've got to understand what the background to Arthur is. So the background to Merlin goes way, way back to the Druids. Um, the background to Merlin and Arthur goes back to early Christianity. And the reason Joseph is included is because Joseph is the key to the Holy Grail. So if you want to understand all of the Grail material that is attached to Arthur, what he's looking for and why, you've got to look at Joseph because it starts really with him. So he's there, if you like, as representing the Holy Grail. That's fascinating. And, and <laughs> where, where, so where do we start with this? So you said that Arthur and and Merlin go back to the Druids? Well, um, Merlin does. Um, if you have a look at what Merlin is, if you look at the descri descriptions of Merlin, there's actually about six of them that live between about 400 AD and 600 AD. Um, the first one, Tally Merlin Taliesin's a poet. The next one, Merlin Ambrosius, is a sort of warrior leader. The next one, uh, Merlin Lelogan, is is a really old guy. Lelogan means dear friend, uh, and he's the one that starts Arthur off, but he dies sort of halfway through Arthur's uh, time on Earth. And then Merlin Willett takes over. That's Merlin the Mad. He sees the decline of Arthur and slowly goes crazy. Then there's one called Merlin Tertugan that's up in Scotland, and then another couple of others which eventually turn into bards. But that particular set of people, they are pretty much the last of old British druidry. 
So you've got to get to grips with where they're coming from. So any references I could find to real Druids, um, historical Druids, and the things that they believe, uh, for example, they, they read a lot of Pythagoras and a lot of the Greek stuff. So that goes in, uh, the golden verses are in there, and it gives you this background. By the time you arrive at the point where Merlin the one we're familiar with, Le Logan, when he enters the scene, you've got some idea there, some grasp of what his background is. I mean, Christianity has been around 2000 years, but by the time Merlin was on earth, Druidry had been around almost 4,000. So as a religion, it was enormous. You know, it was everywhere. Um, so you've got to sort of have that missing bit. So it's really, it's about putting the missing bits in. And, you know, I heard once, I, I think I heard Matthew LaCroix say this. He said that um, St. Patrick's Day isn't, shouldn't be celebrated because, oh, not, he didn't say it shouldn't be celebrated, but he said it represents the, um, the, the Irish kicking the snakes out of Ireland. But then he says there were no snakes ever in Ireland. So those snakes represented the Druids. Was that kind of the representation of Christianity kicking the Druids out of Ireland? Uh, I, I'm quite happy to go along with that because you do find, especially in the Irish, the Celtic, the Welsh, the Scots, you know, the whole Arthur cycle, that animals very often represent people, you know, so I would totally go with that. I would say, yes, that that's more than likely what that means. Um, yeah, but very possible. Merlin kind of <laughs> represented this last bit of like maybe Druid knowledge that was hanging around during the time of Arthur and the Merlins before him, you're saying. Yeah, basically, that's it. I mean, the whole cycle, the whole Arthurian cycle is about endings. So the old is ending and then it's about the start of the new. So Arthur as a chapter in the book is is number three. He's halfway through the book. He's three of five. So there are two chapters before him. That's the Merlin and the Joseph chapters and then two after him, which deals with uh, after his time and then the legend, how the legend develops. So he's right in the middle. So what you've got really is it's the end of the Roman Empire. It's the end of Roman rule. You know, Arthur's there in the 400s. You've got Christianity taking over and Druidry coming to an end. But then the original form of Christianity is also coming to an end because the Romans have kind of legalized it in inverted commas. So it, it becomes a more popular and a different religion. So there's a lot of things coming to an end. Arthur's the last true heroic warrior he's a warrior chieftain he's, he's he never uh, never aspires to be a king the king over him is probably melgwyn Gwynedd of wales uh, but he's the battle leader um and basically you get this enormous cataclysm that occurs in in the sort of mid 400s around about um sorry in the mid 500s around about 542 krakatoa the volcano erupts and it obliterates the ancient world certainly in, in europe and in britain you know it's, it's a huge turning point and that doesn't really recover till you get the Saxons, you know, in the 600s. Uh, you start to see the recovery there. But they're looking back to Arthur and they're going, you know, Arthur, Merlin, they're the last of the golden age. That's why they're such an important turning point. That's amazing. So how much knowledge do you think was lost with Arthur? Like, and and what, what was the real Arthur? Like, was there a real Arthur? Uh, well, there's two questions there <laughs> in terms of lost... In terms of lost knowledge, uh, a huge amount, a vast amount of knowledge would have been lost at that point. Uh, we were even discussing earlier today over here, actually, whether or not there was a gospel of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, if there was, it was probably written over here. It was probably written in Welsh and it's gone. And that's the problem. A lot of the documentation from that period isn't there. It's just missing. And it takes hundreds of years for it to recover back to its to its old um, standard, as it were. Um, and... 
Arthur is a battle leader. He's a battle chieftain. He's um, in charge, if you like, of a certain area. So he's quite brutal. He is a real character. He he aspires to be uh, a sort of a real warrior hero, very much in the, the frame of Beowulf, which is a Viking hero. He's very much like that, but for the British, uh, none of his children survive. Most, most of them were killed at his own hand for rebellion. Uh, he had seven sons. None of them outlived him. Um, he had three wives, uh, of which none of them he stayed faithful to um you know it, it, he's a crazy kind of um tough guy that you really wouldn't want to pick a fight with and his warriors you know correspondingly they're they're a pretty rough bunch because they're a war band so you know when when you think of arthur and the round table it's it's not quite as romantic as we tend to think of it um you know they're, they're all real professional fighters that's basically what they're what they are could you could you almost consider Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table to like the, something of like the Crusaders? Well, that's an interesting overlap. Um, if you do that in reverse, I think the Crusaders, certainly the Templars, the Hospitallers, and a couple of the other orders, certainly they modelled themselves very much on a previous time. That previous time being. Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. And then if you jump back again, they go back to the Roman structure of, of militaria, which you find with Arthur. I mean, Arthur is the last of that Roman structure. So certainly the idea of monks carrying swords, you know, that goes back to, again, it's the Druids mixing with the Christians to produce Chaldees. These warrior monks back in the 300s, the 400s, 500s, thought nothing of walking around carrying swords. You know, there's depictions of them doing that. So by the time you reach the Templars, you know, having sort of gone through that time of, of Danes and Vikings and what have you, having gone through that, the Normans who start them off are basically Vikings. So they have this outlook where, you know, we're going to build, chivalry is going to build on the past. So working backwards, yeah, that is basically what you've got. You have got this enormous overlap. That's that's so interesting. Now, you, you say and says in the de definition that the Polychronicon is a symphony of history of over 40 years in the making, stretching from the end of the Greeks to the rise of the Tudors, focusing especially on the topics that impact of Merlin, Joseph of Marathia, and Martha. Now, we talked about Merlin and we talked about Arthur, but um, I want to get deep into this topic of Joseph of Arimathea and what he, okay. and where was Arthur trying to, what was what was the Holy Grail first? I guess that's the best question. Like, if we get into <laughs> I guess what we could ask, what was the Holy Grail? It's That's a fabulous question. Um, there's <laughs> a couple of answers. You, you basically you can go in two directions because there's, there's the idea of a grail and then there's the physical reality of a grail. So if you go down the physical um, reality of it, there are about 27 different variant versions of what a grail is. But... Conditionally, it must either come from the Last Supper, so you've got this entire dinner service, including the cup that Christ used at the Last Supper, That any of that would qualify as a grail, or the crucifixion. So you've got things like the Turin Shroud, the Crown of Thorns, you know, all, all the ointment that was used, you've got all that sort of thing, and the Spear, Spear of Destiny. So those two categories, you can get them as items that Arthur and his knights are seeking they're trying to get those items so physically you could say yeah okay that's the grail now uh in 20 i think it was 2012 um some chaps were doing some research in, in the middle east they were looking at islamic manuscripts and they actually pulled out two shipping receipts for the grails 
because there are two of them. There's the cup of Christ and the cup of the apostles. These were kept at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And at this point in the 1200s, they were sent over to Spain. So if you get the book and have a read, you'll read about these couple of stone cups. I think physically that's what was kind of sat in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, if you like. So that's the physical side of it, as fast as I can give it to you. The other side of it, though, it's a very ancient idea idea that if you have a vessel if you have a stone bowl or something that serves grain or porridge or bread or whatever to a, a company of people and you serve that with wine so you've got grain wine you've got the bread and the wine that bowl becomes a graal and the word graal the reason we only get that from sort of the 11th and 12th century onwards is it's a viking word sangral the word sang means the in capital letters Graal means grail, so the grail is the cup at the Last Supper. Obviously, that's what the grail is. But a grail is any bowl that serves the company. So in, in the Vikings' case, they had stone bowls, which they used to send round on the Viking ships with porridge in, flavoured with red wine. And it used to keep them alive on long journeys. You could feed a whole crew out of these stone bowls. So that's where they're getting the idea from. But obviously, it goes back to the Last Supper. Then it goes back to the Passover, and then if you go even further back into the Old Testament, you finish up with uh, the Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, coming out and having bread and wine with Abraham. So this whole idea goes back 4,000, 5,000 years. If you fast forward that spiritually, of course, that also confuses the matter, because any chalice that's used in communion or any vessel that's used in communion could qualify as a grail, the plate or the cup. So technically... Every church since the medieval period has had one. So that really gets confusing. But, but, but there's uh, something myster more mysterious to it. Is it like that they want it for like power? Do they feel like they would get more power if they attained this grail? Well, the whole quest, the whole idea of grails, um, it wasn't uh, uncommon for rulers and people in power. Certainly as the Roman Empire began to collapse, they started to look for something that would legitimize their power. So all the relics tend to find a home. They all end up somewhere by, you know, somewhere between three and 400 AD. Everybody's kind of got one. You know, they're all after one because they can say, oh, I've got the right to rule. I've got the sword of Peter, you know, and somebody else will say, ha ha, mine trumps that. I've got the sword of John the Baptist, you know, or the head of John the Baptist, or I've got the cup of Christ. I've got whatever, you know, and, and they're looking for all these different things to legitimise the rule. And Arthur's no different. Once he actually, you know, gets sorted and he gets his kingdom together and he's got his knights and he's got Camelot and he's got all that, you know, he's feeling really secure. You know, he's got Guinevere and he's just sat there thinking, what do I do now? What do I do next? Where do I go from here? Well, the obvious thing to do then is to go on quests. It's to, you know, he ultimately ends up fighting as well, but that's what he's doing. He's legitimising his power by having these divine objects yeah, it's kind of like um, uh, um, you could almost you know, like to compare it to like uh, like Alexander the Great, who I seem to know a lot, I know a little bit about, where he like when when he once he had Babylon, like he wanted to go further, like he wanted to go yeah further east and like go on these quests to legitimize his power. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, I believe um, his uh, father as well, or oh, I can't remember his name now, but it was it was something like the sword of Macedonia was something that was passed on to Alexander. And he took that and he fought with that sword. And in turn, his sword then, as this sword of Macedonia got passed on again, you know, to 
whoever it was, one of these generals or whatever that took over at the end. So uh, that idea was very old. It was very ancient. You could pass these objects down, you know, as tangible proof, if you like, of things that had gone on in the past, especially if you were inheriting that power or you were a member of that particular family. I mean, Joseph Arimathea comes over here to Britain. I don't think anyone would argue with that. I mean, I'd, I'd argue with Glastonbury. Glastonbury's got nothing to do with it because Wirral Hill is up here. We, we've got it not far from here near Chester. Uh, it's on the Wirral. And he lands there, then he goes into North Wales. So that makes us, makes the Celtic church, the oldest outplanted Christian church in the world because he comes over here around 52 AD. Well, well, the Church of Rome, that's 60 to 62 AD, and that's Peter and Paul. So they're 10 years later. So we've actually got the oldest church over here. So that kind of legitimization, that's that kind of um, powerful trump card, that's what Arthur's after. That's what he's looking for. That's awesome. Now, do you think that the the legend of Joseph of Arimathea and this and Arthur and all this, do you think this gives credence that there was actually a Christ? And or, I mean, because like, you'll hear researchers say that, like nowadays, you'll hear some people say, "Well, there was a Christ," but you know, um, a lot of people say, "Well, if you say Jesus, that means Hell Zeus, and he was actually Yeshua ben Yosef, and he was a you know this and that." But like, what are your thoughts on the real character of Jesus, and do you think he existed? Uh, well, the short answer is yes, I do actually think he existed. I mean, on the basis that there's no smoke without fire. So at the, at the end of the day, there's so much actual source material that traces back to that period. I don't think there's any doubt that Jesus existed. Um, I think he almost certainly did. I, I, I don't think all the twaddle that's kind of bolted onto him is necessarily correct. Uh, I mean, the Chinese recorded a star appearing in the heavens in, you know, six and a half BC. So that means by the time he's crucified 36 AD, you know, he's, he's 42, you know, which makes sense because he's in the temple and he's teaching in areas where he had to be over 40 to enter. So by the time you look at this, you start to think, well, hang on a minute, there, there's a cock up in time itself. You know, even BC and AD and year zero are all they're all completely wrong. So you really have got to dig to get at the truth. That's just one example. As you say, I mean, the name uh, Jesus is actually Ishua. Ishua actually really genuinely translates as Joshua. Now, about 22 percent of the occupants of Jerusalem at that time were called Joshua because Joshua was a famous warrior king you know what i mean and they, they were all all these maccabees are all there waiting for the revolt to take place so they're looking for this leader to come out of the tribe of david so for him to be there with a name like jesus you know jesus is us anglicizing joshua there was loads of them they were everywhere they're all over the place you know but he's the really important one because of what it says in scripture because of the gospels and i'm actually working on a a sort of a similar book, if you like, to the Arthur one, uh, because it opened a can of worms as soon as I started getting into the whole Joseph thing and looking at that issue, going back to those centuries. Um, I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. I've looked at Robin Hood because I've done the life and times of the real Robin Hood, who I thought was completely fake. And then it turned out he's actually in the records. So he's real. And that's only from a thousand years ago. So I took another jump, 1,500 years, and started having a look at Arthur. And lo and behold, he pops up in the Welsh records. So I started off being a bit doubtful about him, but now I'm fairly positive he's real. So I thought, well, let's blow it. Let's go the whole hog. Let's go back 2,000 years and have a look at Jesus. So I think that's coming. That's something I'm working on um, for the, the years ahead. I mean, it, 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 it Sorry. I mean, when I was going to say, when you come out with anything radical, it can take some time. It actually took 45 years to get this book into print because I don't think anyone wanted to touch it with a 10 foot pole because it is quite 
radical. I would encourage people to go out there and have a read of it. It's it's a different format, it's dead easy to read, but it really does say very quietly, but it really does say things that quite a lot of people out there might find a bit uncomfortable. But anyway, there you go. So yeah, I think I think Jesus existed. Uh, well, I think he did. Well, getting back to your book, like what what do you talk about this? Would you say there's like really uncomfortable in it like i'd like to know a little bit more about joseph of arimathea and like does he come from uh jerusalem all the way to britain and does he start teaching and, and, and what, what's what's his story like okay well <laughs> excuse me he's he's in the family of mary um i believe he ends up becoming jesus's uncle-in-law that's his relationship wow. uh, it's be because of that through mary's family he ends up having the right to claim the body and that's how he ends up burying jesus in his own tomb but he took the side of these new disciples he took the side of jesus and he was uh, arrested he was thrown into prison he escaped by miraculous means um, and then he realized that persecution was coming so he got hold of uh, at least three marys that we know of mary magdalene mary the mother of jesus and also mary the handmaiden he got hold of these marys plus um let me get this right another nine other disciples so by the time they all get on a boat and sail away i think there's 13 major disciples major prominent characters on this boat plus a lot of other people they don't go off in isolation and they kind of cross the mediterranean they bounce down the french coast and eventually they're trying to get as far away from rome as they possibly can so they finish up going all the way because if you go any further than the british isles you fall into the atlantic so you can't get any further away really from rome than here that's it. So uh, he goes to places he knows. He's been trading with the Brits. He knows where Wirral Hill is. And he comes here, uh, bringing with him, as I say, um, possibly the one that's most important is Mary, the mother of God, mother of Christ, because it's said that he's buried with her in the first church ever built in the world, which I would venture to say is in North Wales. If you want an exact location, uh, buy the book. But yeah, I think that's one of those kind of Oh, moments, you know, we didn't see that coming. That's one of those radical moments. I mean, it makes sense that he comes here because if you actually have a look in the um, official list of popes, the first pope after Peter and Paul who's recorded there is a guy called Linus. Linus's mum was British. She was an ancient Briton. So little details like that that pop in kind of, you know, gives you an ooh moment. So it was it was worth looking at the build-up, you know, to 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 get all these uh, these exclusives. But Joseph is he's a really important character. Like I say, founds the first church in the world um, outside of Rome itself. Let me just read you something off the back of the book. So I read this to somebody the other day. This this kind of puts things in, in context, okay? Yeah. Excuse me reading this, but uh, it's just on here. It says Merlin becomes one of an ancient line of Pythagorean scholars and political visionaries. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a religious dissident fleeing persecution and death to far off foreign shores. Arthur, a hardened womanizing battle leader who loses his entire family and culture to war and eventually natural disaster. I think that kind of sums it up. It's It's a very modern book with modern stories for a very modern world. Um, and it's like I say, full of surprises. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about was a, a, a couple of things. Like um, the, the site when after Christ dies, obviously, like supposedly, like all the disciples split up, and Mary yeah. goes to. Um, so Joseph comes here with Mary, with jo Christ's mother, right? Here, yeah, those are your country, Britain. Like, and, yeah. 
Mary Magdalene, she, they say she went to France and had a daughter. Do you agree with that? And supposedly the daughter's name was Sarah. I, I mean, this is just good, just for BS topics. Like, but like, I, yeah. what do you, do you agree with that? Well, it's, it's fairly certain that, like I said, when he sets off, he's got at least three Marys. One of the Marys, the handmaiden's interesting because she's said to be Ethiopian. And people do wonder, they actually think that might have triggered off the cult of the Black Madonna because she was called Mary and she was black. So hence, you've got a black Madonna. Uh, whether or not Mary Magdalene settled and had a daughter in France, I, excuse me, in the source documents, which come from the Vatican, um, I could not find anything to support that. Um, but the legend is strong and there is a church in France that claimed to have Mag the skull of the Magdalene. So that is a distinct possibility. Uh, but what I do find in the records is Mary, the mother of Jesus, in other words, the older Mary, traveling in that party and making it all the way to Britain. So you've got to remember, I mean, there's a possibility actually of a fourth Mary as well, but I'm not even going to go into that. It just gets really confusing. But those are the three main characters who seem to have a history beyond that journey out of the Middle East. That's interesting. That's so interesting. Now, um, now, one one thing that we didn't touch on yet about your book and is uh, Guinevere and Lancelot. Um, uh, do they have a place in real reality, or were they characters made up to enrich the Arthur story? Well, Lancelot is is a man of two parts. Okay, um, there is a guy who is a knight who serves under Arthur in his war band. But his Welsh name is unpronounceable, and it appears to be the origin of that name, Lancelot. But he's not a prominent character, because in the early stories, it's Gwain. Gwain is the, the prominent Arthurian knight in the early stories. By the time he gets to medieval times, though, this is the second identity of Lancelot. Uh, there's a lot of Norman knights that really see themselves in Lancelot as a character. So the character we're used to, this guy that, you know, goes off with Guinevere in the background, you know, having his wicked way and all that, uh, and produces, oh, what's his name? It's not Galahad, but one of the others. Anyway, he has a son. Um who becomes a Grail Knight. The whole of that is medieval romance. You don't find any of that contained in the early, um, <laughs> the early sources. What you do find, though, is you do find that Guinevere, who is a Pictish queen, travels all the way down from Scotland into Wales, you know, decides to make this alliance with Arthur. That's where he gets Guinevere as a third wife from. Um, she makes this alliance, but she's extraordinarily full of herself. Um, she's uh, definitely not faithful. She's only there as part of the alliance. And basically in the Pictish uh, way of rulership, they rule through their queens. So he's only a battle leader, but she's a Pictish queen. So we've got this this woman who, you know, not to put too fine a point of it, really kicks ass. You know, she's, she's an enormously powerful character. Um, and she outlives Arthur in the end. She ends up going back up to Scotland, but uh, but they're not very impressed by her behaviour in Scotland. Unfortunately, she dies up there. Uh, but she is she is a very real character. Uh, she, in, in Welsh, um, Winlegy, which is who she is, uh, translates as White Phantom. Um, and I was talking to somebody else about this. It's, it's, it's quite funny because the, the, the three wives he's got are all referred to as, as these White Phantoms. And apparently Arthur had a type so they actually look like three sisters. It was quite hard to tell 
one Guinevere from another. So they have this trouble with this character turning up called the false Guinevere. Um, so she's she's a really complex character. But no, she's real. She's she's definitely there. Lancelot less so. You know, he's he's more of a medieval invention. Yeah. And then it says in the in the description that um a couple of things and more things I'm gonna cover that uh Merlin becomes an ancient line of Pythagorean scholars. Can you talk about that? The Romans, I think it was Tacitus, um, when Julius Caesar uh, instructed Tacitus to write things like his Gallic War and stuff like that, started to write the only accounts that we've got anywhere of real druids. Because he met one and he, he obviously ran across quite a few of them because they were still around then. Uh, and what he tells us is that they were Pythagorean scholars, that they followed the ways of Pythagoras. So when we think of, of the Merlins and when we think of Druids, you should really think of these kind of very highbrow, very intelligent Greek characters. You know, like the guys you see sat around in togas, you know, debating and all that. That's more like a druid. So they were scientists. They read, um, they were augurs. They read signs and what have you. Uh, they read the heavens. They knew about stars. They knew about mathematics. Um, all of what was Greek culture that fed into the Roman culture, the druids independently picked most of that up. Um, Greek culture got into France through Marseille. They colonized uh, France from, from the south upwards. So by the time it got to here, which is the later period of, of colonization, uh, this country was known to the Druids. And uh, obviously it would have influenced them. It would have influenced um, Merlin, certainly. Uh, so I've put a little bit of that in the book. There's a, a few very choice um, gems, if you like. The golden verses are the best ones. Um, that's Pythagoras. And I managed to find a translation that was done in the 400s uh, by a guy called Hecateus. And Hecateus translates it in such a way that Merlin could actually have read it because it only came out, it only came available as a translation during Merlin's lifetime. So when you read the one in the book, you're actually reading something that Merlin would have perhaps sat there, you know, about 20 or 30 years after the translation was done. He could have sat there in front of a fire in an oak grove, you know, in his toga on a sunny day, and he could have gone through the golden verses because it would have interested him. That's the kind of thing he would have looked at. And it tells you an awful lot about his identity. It kind of decodes the character. It picks the character apart for you. That's so cool. And then one of the last things I have here is that as I was just reading this, it says, uh, for the first time ever, the Saxons, the Danes and the Vikings are placed in an Arthurian context. Here's one thing I have a question of. What, I was wondering why this, this might sound like a really simple question, but like, when is the earliest form, before we get into that? Like, yeah. Like, but when is the earliest form of British history recorded? Because, like, it seems like it, it might have started to be recorded with uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Where was that more tribal at the time of the Romans? When did um, British society really start to rise up and become its own uh, historical context? Mostly during the Roman period. I've got to say that uh, we start to appear on the world stage. Um, probably with uh, a guy called Pythias, Pythias the Greek, around about 320, 330 BC, people start to write things down about us. 
then it slowly starts to increase from that. So by the time you get into Roman times and then you switch from BC to AD, as I say, you've got things like the Gallic Wars and all this kind of thing, where the Romans are writing absolutely shed loads about us. They're over here. They've mapped everything. The Brits themselves and the Druids themselves were not particularly interested in writing things down. Or if they were, most of that information was destroyed. Uh, war, invasion, internal conflicts, uh, natural disaster. You know, the Romans probably cleared a lot of that that information away, pardon me, because it was not in their interest to keep it going. Um, but we do appear, you know, there is there's written history. But if you really want history with a capital H, the stuff the academics absolutely love, it starts really with the Anglo-Saxons, because the Anglo-Saxons are already here and they're writing about here. So you round about, 600 AD you're just coming in with the proper serious manuscripts just after the time of Arthur uh, which is why I say that disaster in six uh, in uh, 542 uh, the eruption of Krakatoa it just affected the entire planet that took out an awful lot of early history in, in that cataclysm um, there were plagues there was fire raining from the sky the sun was blacked out they had three years of crop failures uh, it was it's a bit of a disaster uh, there's a book by David Keyes called Catastrophe if anyone wants to get hold of that, it's, it's a whopping big thing. And it really tells you how bad it was um, at that point. And that's why nobody knows where Arthur's buried, because all the records have, have disappeared. Well, one thing when we're talking about British history, is there an influence of like um, uh, uh, Phoenician or Babylonian um, influence in the British? Uh, I, I thought something like the name Britain or Britannia came from like a Babylonian. I think David Icke said that. I don't know. I was um is there any of that influence in in your in the ancient history of Britain? Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go all professional on you here because uh, as a day job I'm an archaeologist. So the answer is yes, things turn up that are Phoenician, but we don't have enough of that to say what was going on. Uh, we know that Britain's trading with the rest of the world. We know that the rest of the world's trading with Britain because things turn up all over the world that come from here, and then we get things over here that come from the rest of the world. So inevitably there will be a tiny bit of influence coming from those cultures, but especially the Phoenicians. I mean, there's been a row blazing over here for 200, 300 years as to whether the Phoenicians ever got here. Uh, but the interesting thing is on Wirral Hill, Wirral Hill, where Joseph lands, uh, there's an ancient port called Mel's, and they've actually had Phoenician coins off there archaeologically. So it's interesting that that was a major port. It was a major world port. Uh, that Joseph would have been aware of. So the archaeology tends to back up the pattern that you find in the book. That perhaps is what I'm trying to say there. But no, Phoenicians, Babylonians um, and even Egyptians um, tend to only have a very small amount of input um, to a point. Um, and then, of course, they're all gone and we're into historical times. It's fascinating. When you talk about the history, like there's a um, there's a site over here. I'm sure you know it because you're an archaeologist. It's called America's Stonehenge. It's in Maine, I think. I yeah. think. I'm pretty sure it's in Maine. And uh, I've interviewed the owner um, and uh, they think that there might be Phoenician writing on that. And then I've interviewed this other guy. His name's uh, Ron Rademacher. He runs MichiganBackroads.com where he talks about the ancient copper mystery of uh, 
And he was saying that like people were coming to this, what we would call the new world before Columbus to trade copper because you remember people would have needed it for their swords and stuff. This is just like, like oh, interesting alternative stuff that I've been able to kind of dig up. But <laughs> it makes me think that, well, I guess the point I'm trying to make, and, and I like it talking to you about it because you're an archaeologist is we might've been much more connected than we think. And that's kind of why I brought up that question about the, the Phoenicians, the Babylonians, because I know the Phoenicians got around all over the place. So it was kind of like, I kind of wanted to pick your brain on that, but what are your- Well, uh, I was going to say out in America, you, you used to have a banned books list. And in the 1970s, there was a book came out called America BC. And it was by a, a guy called Barry Fell. And what he did was he went everywhere, all over the States, looking for signs of other cultures. Now, if you can find that, I mean, you have to probably have to buy a second-hand copy on Amazon or whatever. But if you can get America BC by Barry Fell, it covers the Irish coming over, the Vikings coming over, the Egyptians coming over, the Phoenicians coming over, you know, uh, the Norse. The Norse coming over. There's there's so much information in that. Now that that's back in the 1970s. Slowly, it looks like he's being proven right, because as America is slowly opening up a little bit more to the possibility that you know there was more going on there than perhaps originally thought, uh, it looks like Barry was right. So if you got hold of that book, that would really open things up for you. That would um, that would pop your brain a bit, I think. I've heard of him before, Barry Fell. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Why. Maybe maybe I, I but I don't know enough about him. Uh, did he do a lot of research on antiquities? Yes. Yeah. He was looking for physical evidence, which is basically what archaeologists love. You know, uh, you can't beat finding something and going, yes, that's it. You know. Bingo, uh, which has always been a difficulty with Arthur because this, you know, it's hard to find physical remains. There are some in the book, which people will find interesting, uh, but it's it's difficult. It's difficult to pin that one down. But yeah, I mean, uh, the other thing with the ancient world is that people could sail, you know, rather than walk across miles of land and run the risk of being ambushed and have your stuff sold, stolen, they would get onto reasonably sturdy boats. So wherever there was a river or an ocean or a lake or whatever, people were going back to, back to, back to. And clearly they were doing that for an awful lot longer than we've previously thought. So there's no reason why there wouldn't be some form of connection between all of the lands on the surface of the globe because water is your connection. It's your common uh, common connector between them all. Uh, and that seems to be the picture that's emerging now in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, so, so back to your book, um, you, you said this is the first time the Saxons, the Danes and the Vikings were placed in Arthurian context. That's a combination that? of two factors. The, fir the first factor is once you know where Arthur is, once you've nailed him down and you can get a geographic area for him, his relatives, his warriors, you know, all the named sites in the early records, basically it all goes back to Wales. It goes back to the Welsh. All the earliest sources are from the Old North, which is the Welsh Britain's territory. Then you can start to see who came immediately after Arthur to that area. And I was quite shocked to discover that the Anglo-Saxons ignore him completely because they absolutely hate him, because he hammered the living daylights out of the Saxons. And when they saw him in battle, they had no idea who he was. So why would they write anything down about this guy who's their enemy? You know, they're not going to glorify him. So they tend to ignore him. But they're followed then by the Danes. Now, the Danes have this hero culture. You know, anybody that's a decent warrior becomes a hero. That also feeds into the Vikings, the Norse, you know, the men of the North. They have Beowulf and characters like that, as I've already said. So they then look at Arthur and they think, hang on a minute, the enemy of my enemy 
is my friend. So we're going to like this guy. You know, we don't like Saxons either. He doesn't like the Saxons. So we're going to take the side of the Britons and we're going to glorify Arthur. So the very first poem to actually mention Arthur is they think from the language. They think it comes from southern Scotland, which is partly the Pictish territory. So they would have got the information up there going from Wales. But mostly Scotland was influenced by the Germanic tribes, the Danes, the Scandinavians, the Vikings, you know, they were in and out of Scotland all the time. Uh, so this heroic poem that just it just has a last line that says, you know, this guy in this poem was brilliant, but he was no Arthur. And that's basically what it says. He was no Arthur. Uh, that That is not long after, you know, the country starts to recover again. So that's how it works when you start to look at that. Otherwise, you end up with this enormous leap. You know, Arthur disappears. He's, he's dead in 539. And then the next thing you hear is Geoffrey of Monmouth in, you know, in the 1100s, the 1120s, 1130s, writing all this stuff down about Arthur. And you're like, hang on a minute. What happened? You know, where, where's the last 600 years gone? What happened in the gap? So I, I focused on that gap. And I think I'm the first person really to do that justice. But knowing where Arthur was and seeing who was connected with that territory and who met who and who talked to who gives you that that thread if you like uh, it explains how arthur finishes up in sicily and parts of italy it explains how arthur ended up in northern france you know it it just it, it opens up so much more of that link between you know early medieval or late roman if you want to call it and the medieval period the high medieval period it fills that that hundreds of years gap so wait, Arthur lands somewhere, and was he was he fighting for the Roman army then, or like what was he? Because if he was in France and he was in Italy, like was he a part of? Were the Britons were the Britons fighting on behalf of Rome, or were they on their own sovereign nation? There was a there was a tradition with Roman emperors that if you got into trouble, you put the call out for as many armies as you could gather, and and that happened right right through the history of, of the Roman Empire, over a thousand years. The last Roman emperor, truly Roman emperor, in Rome was a guy called, I think it was Theodosius. Theodosius puts the call out in, in round about, I think it's 520, 520-something, 520 uh, and he puts the call out for armies, and that's the one that we think Arthur responds to. So Arthur gathers his army, gathers his navy, gathers everything, sails across to France, and he's on the way to fight for Theodosius. Now, how far he gets, nobody's absolutely certain. Because in Brittany, he's on safe ground because Brittany is firmly Celtic and that's where all the Welsh Britons have gone, hence the name Brittany or Little Britain. So he's fine there. He's OK. He starts working his way towards Italy. And then the next minute, the barbarians come in and wipe Theodosius out. So they're gone. You know, so he's got nothing left to fight for. So he rounds up what he's doing in Europe, finishes fighting in Europe and just comes back, comes home which is his undoing, because by that point, everybody thinks he's dead. Guinevere's took up with Mordred, and we get this, this famous last battle of Camlan, um, Arthon Gamlan. You get this final battle when he gets back. But that's how he ends up going over there. Also, what's a little-known fact is his mum is actually Northern French. So uh, the wife of Uther Pendragon is, is a Northern French lady. So the French have kind of got a vested interest in him anyway. Wow. This is, this is fascinating stuff. But, but I don't have any other questions. Is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to go over before we finish up? 
Uh, yeah, it'd be quite nice uh, to tell you where Camelot is. Um, I, that was a, a bit of a, an eye-opener for me. It's an interesting story. I'll just tell it as a story. I was out filming something for television many years ago, um, and one of the people we were interviewing was the head archaeologist of this enormous Roman town, which is the biggest Roman fort ever built. It's 11 acres bigger than any other Roman fort, and it's Chester. It's here. Uh, and we'd finished filming, and we sat down having a cup of tea or whatever, and, and this guy leans over and he goes you're interested in Arthur, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. And then he said, Camelot, it's Chester. I said, well, okay, prove it. He said, well, it's got the baths. The baths complex was converted into the biggest dark age palace for a dark age warrior, um, basically anywhere in Britain. He said, it's got the biggest military headquarters building, complete with uh, supplies and everything with it. Um, he said it's got uh, tablus rotundum or tablus ro rotarium, which is the round table, this circular building. He said it's got white walls. It's got big towers. It's got the amphitheater where the earliest Christian martyrs took place. He said there simply is no other candidate. He said that's Camelot. Um, so that might also be a big reveal to some folks to know that uh, we know where Camelot is and that it was a real city. It really existed. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, Zoom's messing up right now. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, that happened to me before. I think I have to update it. But um, well, it, thank you, Mark. This was amazing. This was actually so fascinating. I, I love talking about history. Can you tell everybody where to find you, where to find the book, and uh, and yeah, and thank you so much. Okay, okay, I'm I'm really easy to find. The book and all the other books I've written, everything I've ever done, go to Amazon. Amazon, click on what you want, you know, swipe, off it goes. Three or four days later, it'll come flying through your door. That's where to go. So if you want to get the Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph and Arthur, uh, go and find it. It's there on Amazon. Just type my name in, it'll come up. If you need me, if you want to contact me, I'm on Facebook. Send me a friend request to Facebook. We can talk on Messenger. Um, and then if you need me for anything else, talks, interviews, anything like that, um, we can then take it from there, from Messenger. So it's either Amazon if you want to buy something or Facebook if you want to come and find me. All right. Well, th thanks, Mark. This was really fascinating. And uh, I'll send you a link when I upload it. Fabulous. Um, hope you can still hear me even if you can't see me. And uh, it's all Zoom's fault. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a common thing with this yeah. app. I don't know what app. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. Have a good day.